Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 131. In this episode, we're talking about depicting Jesus in Jesus films with Dr. Richard Walsh. Dr. Richard Walsh is Womack Professor of Philosophy and Religion and the co-director of the Honors Program at Methodist University. He's also the author of a number of books on Jesus films, including Reading the Gospels in the Dark, and more recently with Jeffrey Staley, Jesus, the Gospels, and Cinematic Imagination. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stephanie K. Judd, Reverend Daniel Parham, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So, Stefan, Daniel, this was a lovely conversation with Dr. Walsh. He knows a ton about Jesus films. Very much. We were only able to scratch the surface uh, with him, but it was a a delight to chat. Uh, What were some of the takeaways that you two had from our conversation with Dr. Walsh? I think the one that I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of today is his observation about um, horror and, and the monster in in film and how that um, like motif or whatever the language is, that the strangeness and otherness of the monster is a kind there's an analogy there with how Jesus is portrayed in, in Jesus films. And, you know, this, the enterprise of trying to represent this God man in, in a medium that has its own challenges. I just thought it was such, is such a rich conversation. He had so many fantastic insights particularly about how the challenge that there is in representing the divine, which is fraught with, you know, recreating the divine in our own image, this this movement away from the awesomeness of God towards Jesus' friend. Just there's just so much a wide-ranging conversation. He took some left field questions. So I loved it. I thought it was great. I appreciated his understanding of kind of this follower mentality and how that journeys, I think, through the historicity of Jesus films, right? And uh, the depictions of not just uh, the main character per se, uh, but but actually the surrounding settings, uh, the emphases of certain individuals, uh, the tropes that we look for in terms of our own uh, vision of what a main character against the kind of sub-characters or plot, plot builders are. Um, and it gives us a sense of infancy in Jesus films, even though we have nearly a hundred years worth, but in in relationship to church history, the biblical narrative, there is still this youthfulness to what a film can be and trying to capture elements of uh, what Jesus uh, was doing in the midst of these, these narrative plots. So, uh, I'm a little bit confounded by how much he knows. <laughs> and then also, uh, I think, impressed upon uh, to envision Jesus films in a more robust way than I have before. As always, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or you can visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And if you leave us a, a rating and review, that would be fantastic. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Richard Walsh. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Walsh. Uh, Thank you for having me. So as we're uh, beginning the series on Jesus films and thinking about some of the threads and the trends uh, over the last century uh, plus as uh, Jesus films have been uh, created, one of the kind of perennial issues is, you know, how do you represent Jesus? How do you depict him? What kind of personality uh, do you try to give him? And throughout the last century, there's been some interesting choices that have been made. I wonder if you could kind of speak to this kind of general project of depicting Jesus in a film at all uh, and some of the sort of ways that that has been navigated? Well, the first thing that I would think of is a reluctance to present Jesus at all. Certainly, there was a great deal of theatrical reluctance to present Jesus just before films uh, came into being. Other than that, I think that Jesus has been represented uh, as much as possible according to what audiences expected. In in the U.S., Jesus Jesus, Jesus is revered as an icon, as the Son of God, 
And so most film presentations of Jesus have skewed in that direction. Uh, people like Lloyd Bow, uh, filmmakers like Scorsese have objected to this. They've claimed that, the, that the, if we go so far towards the divine side that you have some kind of Gnostic depiction, that you're not really giving an incarnational view. And uh, Bow is a very serious theologian, and Scorsese is very interested as a Catholic in all of this. And so they wanted a more incarnational view and are critical of Jesus' films because of this. But I think most of them... Uh, partly because of what audiences expect uh, and, and partly because of the nature of film itself have tended towards uh, divine or iconic representations of Jesus. Uh, the objection to that, I would think, are people that you might consider more artistic filmmakers who have appropriated Jesus for their own aesthetic project or their own ideological project. Um, and then, and to many people, these may not seem divine. Like Scorsese, I think, has been unfairly attacked for his, uh, what pe many people considered uh, not appropriately divine presentation of Jesus. Uh, when you can look at his entire body of work, not just that Jesus film and see that he's really struggling with the issue and uh, reflecting upon the issue. But artistic films sometimes go another way. And if you think of Jesus films broadly, not simply as historically realistic depictions, but you think of Jesus films as including Jesus figures or Christ figures or Jesus relocations, uh, then the how Jesus gets portrayed really gets opened up. Uh, in fact, it can be so diverse that you may wonder if it's a Jesus film. So Carolyn Vanderstichel has done a lot of work with Bible and film. And she wrote an essay not too long ago on uh, the, uh, the New Testament film. The New New Testament film was a Belgian film, I think. Uh, and a, a, a young lady is the younger sister of Jesus. The film focuses on her. And, and Caroline's whole approach was to discover whether or not this is a Jesus film. Our son of man uh, relocated Jesus to a fictional Judea in South Africa in the modern world. And so there's some discussion about whether this is a Jesus film. Uh, Barnes Tatum and I had a running argument for years and years uh, about whether Life of Brian was a Jesus film or not. You know, okay, but but the basic the basic thing is I think an iconic Son of God presentation, and that is because of what audiences expect, but also because of the light and dark, the visual representation uh, uh, endemic to, to film itself. Mm. You think about Demille's presentation of Jesus, which I think is. That has happened over and over again. Griffith's portrayal of the lighted cross and intolerance from the very beginning, you've had this divine or iconic, not very human, not very personable, something that you fall down and worship, something that you may not even see completely. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and maybe fortunately or unfortunately, this is not unlike the portrayal of monsters in horror films. Interesting. I'd love to hear more more about that. Is it the kind of the distance from the monster and the slow reveal, like that well, sort of thing? Well, yeah, you know, Otto's mysterious, Mysterium Tremendum at Fascinons, uh, the, the idea of the sublime that was so important to the Romantics. A Lovecraft's play with, you know, the, the fathers, the gods before, all, you know, all of that, so that you have this sense of absolute other, your sense of strangeness of, and there's a revulsion at this, but there's also an attraction. But bottom line in all of this, there is fear because it is so different and so other. Brandon Graffius has done a lot of work with this. Uh, Tim Beale had a good book years and years ago, which is uh, coming out again, I think, this year. I think a, a redo of that's coming out, his book on uh, the holy and uh, horror, that kind of, some kind of fundamental connection there. Yeah. That is so fascinating. And, you know, when I think about a, a lot of the portrayals of, of Jesus, you know, what you often get is a kind of stoic presentation, uh, kind of, as, as you're saying, this kind of um, other that, um, that that is so unlike us. One of the heuristics that I often uh, bring up when I talk about this is, you know, just going off the source material from the Gospels, you know, if, if the Jesus represented in the film is not somebody that people would want to party with and then that the others would want to kill, um, doesn't doesn't seem to reflect much of the material that we have in scripture. And it's interesting, though, um, we don't really get that kind of a representation. Uh, there are a handful of films where Jesus is a little bit more smiley. I think of Roger Young's Jesus from 1999, uh, or even the version of Matthew from 1993. You know, you have a couple of Jesuses, and most 
recently the one in Chosen, The Chosen. Uh, he's a bit more personable. Wh- why do you think there's been this kind of move away from that kind of, if there is that kind of monstrous background that you're kind of talking about, why do you think there's been this move away from that? And what do you think is, is kind of uh, behind that? Well, Prothero's book on Jesus in America says that there's a move away from the awesomeness of God to the friend Jesus in, in U.S. or American presentations of Jesus. And it may, be, it may be part of that. James Crossley did a piece a few years ago talking about um, some cultural observer in Britain who said we ought to go back, that, that Brits ought to go back to the aloof God, the, the, the scary God, the architecture that separated you from God, rather than the touchy freely stuff, which he felt they'd gone to. So I, I think there's a, there's a, a, a trajectory in modern Western culture, if not anywhere else, to humanize and personify Jesus or the divine. And this, at the same time that you're elevating and deifying the individual so that they meet on more and more common ground. Uh, and maybe that's why horror movies replaced Bible movies in the late 20th century. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a human need for some kind of confrontation with a scary other, an other that is beyond, not a party guy. What a friend we have in Jesus, but something other and different than that. Richard, I'm, I've been reading a bit of, about um, iconography in Rowan Williams' work, um, and something that he does, he marks out this kind of spectrum from idols, images, and icons. And I'm curious about the way that you use that, that language of, Jesus the icon, and I wondered if there was some resonance with that that Eastern tradition of iconography in the sense that something that I found interesting that Williams talks about is the way that central to um, the tradition of icons is this idea that there's this presence of divine action within the icon um, such that it's it's something that interrupts and arrests us. It, it invites and compels. It's it, similar to what you're talking about with respect to the, the monster is it interrupts what we're expecting um, and that causes us to take stock and to pause and to realise that there's something here that's other to us that is intruding upon our agency, that we're not the only agents in the world. And that in itself opens us up to something like a silence and an encounter with, with the divine. Um, I'm, I'm not from an Eastern tradition, and so I find this really interesting. And I wondered, as I was reflecting on what you were talking about just now, is that kind of encounter possible in film, given the pace at which it takes place? Does the medium lend itself to that kind of encounter? I'd, I'd be interested to know what your thoughts on that are. Well, Margaret Miles famously says no. Right? What was her name for her book, Seeing and Believing, back in the 90s? And she says, okay, uh, if you think about religious art, you think about icons, and films are not that, uh, because of just what you said, the, the pace is not right. It, it, the whole attitude is not right. Uh, you know, consumption or entertainment and religious devotion are different things. Okay, so uh, I, I, I teach a religion and film class. And I try to engage my class on whether or not they can have something other than a consumptive, transitory relationship with film, uh, not simply for devotional reasons, but for liberal arts reasons, you know, whether they can reflect upon what's being done to them by images. So every time I talk about Jesus as an icon, I hear Margaret Miles in the background, you know, yelling at me saying, no, 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 this is not right. And so I think I'm using icon a little bit differently than that. Uh, I'm using it as as, in in one sense, simply as a representation of what people expect. So it is strangeness that bothers, I think, most film audiences when it comes to Jesus. So if it really were iconic in Miles's sense or the Eastern tradition, most film audiences would be uncomfortable with this. And this is also another reason I like to bring monsters in at this point to to defamiliarize and to discomfort us at at this point. I don't know Williams's work on this. Sorry, I don't know. Well, uh, well, that that was a a wonderful answer and I think it's uh, really interesting to hear about how this has been the the challenge of representation and what it means for us devotionally I think that's a really such an interesting 
area for me in terms of our own discipleship. I think it's really fascinating. So I think it's also it's also an interesting issue simply aesthetically. What do you mean by that? Jesus films begin in worship. If they weren't intended to be worshipped, they grew out of worship. But technology and capitalism and Jesus movies have had a great deal of effect. But another thing that's not often considered is that art has had an, an impact and an effect. And 20th century art and 21st century art is not religious art in the sense that 19th century art was yeah, okay. or earlier times. Uh, and, and so there, I think there are a lot of people doing Jesus films well, there are a lot of people doing Jesus films who simply want to present a track. They simply want to present what people expect. And so they have a target audience in mind. And so they're doing the best they can, however badly they do it or however, you know, however the audience doesn't like it. They're trying to meet people's expectations for religious or capitalist reasons, one or the other. But there are other people who, this is true of fiction, literary fiction, as well as film. There, there are people who, who are grappling with issues that they think Jesus presents either in their theological tradition or cultural tradition or in literature or some other way. And, and, and so they're struggling with that. So Scorsese, again, you know, starts his film by talking about Kazanzakas, uh, not talking about the Gospels and so forth, because Scorsese sees himself as an artist. I mean, he's gotten in trouble recently criticizing other filmmakers because he does not see them as artists. And, and but he's he's making it his his thing. Burnett, uh, Rhonda Burnett Blesh has a nice uh, essay on Scorsese's entire work, uh, just a little short essay. But she she works mainly with Last Temptation and Silence to talk about what Scorsese's really struggling with aesthetically as well as religiously. So I I, I think was Pasolini's interest religious, or was it political, or was it aesthetic? <laughs> I mean I mean. Yes, <laughs> you know, but the aesthetic plays a, a really important role for some art, some, for some filmmakers, yeah. you know, even in Jesus films. I'd be on the back of that. I'd be interested also in, I mean, I have a kind of a cursory understanding about the different types of Jesus films that have just been just from growing up. Um, but I'd be interested to know that in, in your survey of all these Jesus films, both um, both as you define it, like the kind of the strict Jesus film and then the, the broader kind of category. What are the different genres of film that show up? I've only really come across the more kind of documentary, docu-film style genre. What are the different genres? And off the back of what you just talked about, what, what are they trying to achieve? Are they are they trying to, you know, just in, in, for example, the Jesus films, it seems like the most recent one in 2020, I think it was, seems to be evangelistic. Like it's trying to, as you say, it's trying to present the gospel tract um, to as many people in as many languages as possible. That's the intention. But I'd be interested to hear just from you, like a survey of what are the different genres and what are they trying to achieve and how does that make sense about how we're to receive them? Uh, you, you want to make me very uncomfortable, don't you? <laughs> no comment. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, have a, I have a great deal of difficulty telling you what a Jesus film is. I also have a great deal of difficulty separating Jesus films from Christ figure films. Uh, all of the people who work in the field uh, regularly make fun of me for my inability to do the simplest thing, you know, here with making these distinctions. I think most people think of Jesus films uh, in terms of historical realism. Once upon a time, people my age, you know, thought about Jesus films in terms of the epic Jesus films because silent films were not widely available for, to most people in the 60s and 70s and that, you know, that kind of thing. So everybody thought about Jesus films. DeMille was still around. So you could see DeMille, but, but then you were seeing the 60s films and thereafter. And so the, the definitive Jesus film was some kind of historical epic. And that was defined very broadly to include DeMille, uh, Scorsese, I'm not, well, Scorsese later, but um, Stevens, Ray, the, the, the ones that everybody thinks about, you know, in some sense, Pasolini was the oddball, but everybody talked about him because everybody loved the difference. So the his, historical realism. But the last time I looked at Jesus films, I was struck by the, by the fact that historical realism was something that filmmakers came to only gradually. So Jesus films start in worship. What, what everybody was thinking about when Jesus films were first made was some kind of worship context not representing historical reality. So David Shepard talks about this in his books on silent films. 
And, and he talks about how not all of the earliest Jesus films, but many of them were films of passion plays. They, you know, we, they, they would like the famous oaks about the, the one shot on a rooftop in New York that claimed it was Oberamaga. So the first, they, they wanted to represent not the gospels. They wanted to represent not the historical Jesus, but they wanted to show you a passion play that people couldn't go to see since most people couldn't afford to go to Oberamaga or Horitz or something like this. And then they decided they would put on their own passion plays instead of filming Horitz or Oberamaga. They would just make their own film. So passion plays dominated and nativities were quickly added. And then things started to get it added in between. And often these things that were added in between were sold separately. David Shepard talks a lot about this too. So, so instead of talking about history first, I think we ought to talk about worship first, in particular the theatrical tradition uh, in the church. And I think the second thing that ought to be talked about in terms of worship is how much Christian art played a role in terms of the masters, but also in terms of the uh, illustrated Bibles of the 19th century, Doré and Tissot uh, in particular. So that was what most people saw when they saw Jesus films was either a play, a passion play, a nativity, or they saw the illustrated Bible in movement. And, and gradually uh, filmmakers realized that they could, they could sell travelogues. So From the Manger to the Cross sold itself as a travelogue because at the same time, people were also showing pictures of the Holy Lands you know, and talking about them. So we show this film and that would work too. And from there, you move to things that we might call historical realism, which has dominated Jesus film ever since. Uh, in fact, Adele, you're, you've already talked to Adele. Adele will come along and talk about Jesus films as biopics. I, and I think she's fundamentally right and fundamentally wrong because the biopic is so central to the one she's talking about, or the epic is so central to her other book about the Bible and cinema. But there's also this worship thing that goes before, which Adele knows more about than I do. But you know, she, you know, you, you have it there. Uh, and and then you have what can you do differently? And then you have at the end of the 20th century this this incredible profusion of different kinds of things. So we started in the 70s. We had the the, uh, the Jesus musicals of one kind or another of you know, okay. And some of them were travelogues and, and some of them were historical and some of them were Godspell or something completely different, right? Okay. And, and you had animated films, but most of the animated films strive for a historical realism. And in some ways they do historical realism better because probably the, the least whitewashed Jesus in film in the 20th century was in the miracle of, uh, Miracle worker, right? Is that, is that the maker? Right? Miracle maker. Miracle maker. Yes, right. You're right. Thank you. I'm old, <laughs> but but Adele talks about how that's a, a good Semitic, uh, you know, presentation of Jesus, and and then uh, strangely enough, the uh, Lumo Gospels have uh, a Jesus that fits the historian's bill more than the whitewashed Jesus too. But you have you, you go everywhere, but but if you go back to the beginning of film. You were already going everywhere, too, because David Shepard points out very nicely that you had the spectacle, the worship, present Jesus as iconic or as much as you can. But then you want to tell a story, too. So you picked up popular fictions and plays from the 19th century that were already popular and, and, and you made films of them or you realized that you could make small characters in the gospel story into the story as they looked at the iconic Jesus who was portrayed minimally or not at all, not at all. And, and, and so you have, you, you have worship stuff and you have Jesus adjacent stories uh, before, before you ever get to historical Jesus films. And you could argue that you actually have Jesus relocated to another place before you ever get to the historical realism that dominates what we think of Jesus films too, uh, because you have uh, uh, inches uh, civilization where Jesus appears to a World War one uh, you know prison in a World War one prison uh, I, I, I think that, that that there are a lot of Christ figures in Griffith's intolerance so I don't think Jesus is just restricted to the Jesus fragments uh, David Shepard also talks about how the Balthasar figure in is a, is a Jesus figure so those would be relocations too but we think of 
you know, son of man as a relocation, but there were relocations from the beginning. So all kinds of diversity at the beginning, historical epic domination. And then you have, well, as many things as you can think of will do animation, music, uh, other relocations. And, and, if, and if you're willing to consider Jesus relocations in, in which Jesus is not simply named Jesus, then you have you know, everything else. And if you really think you know what Jesus films are, then look at the life of Jesus by Dumont, that the modern French director, you know, you know where he, he follows this, uh, I, I don't know how to describe the epileptic young man that gets into all kinds of non-Jesus activities. In fact, I'm still trying to figure out why it's called the life of Jesus. It, it's interesting to try to figure it out. So we all know what a Jesus film is until we look at the tradition of Jesus films and find out how many different things go under them. Yeah, and trying to find a common thread between them all right, right. seems a difficult exercise. Yeah. Unless, unless you're aiming at something artistic or ideological, and like let's call Pasolini ideological. I know that's not fair because theology is ideological too, I understand. But, but it's something that seems ideological to most audiences, that religious audiences anyway. Unless you're aiming at something like that or something artistic, then I, I think you're probably going with what you think people expect. I'm interested in this proliferation of representations of Jesus in film. And it seems from what I know, and please correct me if this is not the case, that this is occurring in, in largely the Western church. And it's it's just interesting to me that, you know, back in church, you know, church history, like ninth century, condemnation of the Eastern church's visual representations of the divine, um, and then you know post reformation similar similar kind of impulse wariness suspicion of visual rep- representations. Are we seeing like the pendulum swing back towards this recognition that we're not just literary beings that there's a need for a fuller kind of engagement with the divine? What are your thoughts on that? I don't know if I have thoughts on that. I think that what we call the divine is a consolidation of some some human needs expectations, desires, fears. And if, if your God doesn't fit those human needs, desires, fears, and expectations, then humans will find that elsewhere. So if, if you create a non-terrifying God, somebody's going to come around and say, well, we you know what happened to power, what happened to awesomeness, and, and we're going to have someone presenting a, a terrifying God. If you present a God that's uh, that's too too far away, then we're going to have to come up with some kind of eminence. And I think this works outside theology as well as in theology. So so I, I so I, I might like to talk about ideology or psychology or sociology or anthropology or myth or some of these other things. But there there's something that's not restricted to Christian theology, or we wouldn't have what we have in terms of religious traditions, artistic expressions. So Dr. Walsh, kind of positioning back to your, your the earlier conversation about the westernization of Jesus films, I guess pinpointing um, kind of the ethnic uh, racial uh, visualization as well, uh, tying into what you mentioned about otherness. How much do you think the alignment between otherness and, and kind of the racial displays of, of Jesus in films are tied to one another? Uh, you know, because I think touching in on, you know, uh, the history of, of the church, particularly in the westernization, right. visualization of, of Jesus, Jesus feels, you know, to the populace as more inviting likely um, in a less browning uh, depiction. Um, so how, how do we, you know, especially I think as we are in the age of historicity, uh, but yet we still see probably still a majority of visualization uh, of, of Jesus in our films. Like, I just love your, your context and your wisdom on um, why do we still see that? And then also, are there ways that we can, I guess, recapture a like historical, historical lens in, in, in film? Or should we? I'm probably not as committed to history as I should be. My, my teachers were all historical critics. And I was supposed to grow up and be a good historical critic too, but somewhere along the way I got lost and, and did some other things. 
partly because at the end of the 20th century, there, there seemed to be a lot of things going on in the Society of Biblical Literature and the American Academy of Religion that weren't history that were really exciting uh, and you know, new perspectives and so forth. And then I sort of fell into, some people call it perception history. I, you know, I, I, don't know, I don't know what it's called. But I think what's the heart of your question, I think that we have Western European Jesuses because Western Europe, and I include America, Canada, Australia, and all that, had dominated the world for the 19th and 20th century. Maybe my history is wrong because remember, I fell away from history. Okay. So the, the people that, that because they had been imperialistic and had been wrong in so many ways that we all don't like to talk about, had, had on the backs of other people not mentioned and forgotten, had created a capitalist technological society that could do film. And, and while film soon went to other places, it, it was primarily intended to be to people like the filmmakers, like the technocrats, like the capitalists, like the imperialists. And so that's, that's what dominates film. Film is part of that. Just like Renaissance art looks a certain way because of all kinds of economic cultural things and every other art that's ever been looks a certain way because of its political economic context. Now, we can object to that because of our enlightenment, but what really will change it are political, economic, social changes, which, and, and since I'm an old white guy and soon to be dead and out of everybody's way, I, I probably am not the one to say this, but it seems to me that such changes are happening because I don't think that the U.S. dominates film the way it once did. I think it still has a lot of power, but it, in Bible films and Jesus films, the interesting things I think are happening outside of what you might call Hollywood. And maybe this is not far enough away, but my favorite Jesus film is Arcon's Jesus in Montreal for lots of reasons, but it's, it's my, and I, we can get an argument about whether it's a Jesus film or not, but you know, it's my, but it's my favorite. And uh, Lloyd Bell has done a lot to talk about films that don't come out of the Hollywood mainstream and has been very critical of that. He, he talks about Son of Man. He talks about Sue Ray. He talks about Black Jesus. Um, Reinhold Zwick has done a lot of work with German films that you wouldn't have noticed. He, 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 has, he talked about history of Jesus, the uh, history of Judas, the story of Judas or the history of Judas. I translated the Algerian film um, from not too long ago. Uh, Color of the Cross probably ought to get more discussion than it, than it gets, but there, there, there are different things happening. In fact, Matt Page says somewhere that, that the interesting Jesus films are not happening in what we think of as the West, that, that, that the interesting things are happening outside power structures in some way or another. And even if they are in the power structures, they're not being done by the people with the money. They're people who are figuring out how to do it with less money or yeah, and I, I also love Jesus of Montreal uh, for, for a lot of the reasons that you're touching on right now. It's kind of iconoclastic, kind of uh, critiquing consumerism and all of this stuff in some really interesting ways. And um, it, it makes me think of one of the things that you talk about is how a lot of Jesus films are really artifacts of kind of American mythology and self-identity. And I'm curious if you could maybe say more about, uh, you know, um, what you mean by that. Well, particularly, particularly with the epic tradition, you put so much money into those films, you have to have a huge audience to consume them. And, and so you need to pander to that audience and you pander to that audience by, well, I would call it by deifying the audience. And you, you, you present the audience as the end of everything important you're, you're showing. This is true of history films. It, this is true of all big budget films before we went to the Star Wars stuff and everything. It, usually they were historical if they were fantasies, they were recognizable as something earlier than us. And we are the gods who stand upon this tradition and who all of history has led up to. So they, they have to come to our place or to the place we think we are the best we can be. So that's what I was trying to talk about in one of those things where I talk about they have this myth impact. And I kept looking for parables because I wanted to see something that tweaked me, that upset me, that challenged me instead of telling me that I was a god. 
mm. you know, and, uh, but it, this is all surreptitious. I mean, you, most people wouldn't, I, I, I talked to someone about this recently and I couldn't communicate what I was trying to say couldn't, or what I was thinking. I, I don't know that the audience thinks that they've been deified, but they are comfortable and confident and certain of their place in history. And that's the function of myth, at least as I understand it. And, and societies need myths. They need that we need comfort. We, we need a sense of purpose and direction and, and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. some of these myth Jesus films I like and appreciate. At the same time, I want to try to find some other handle on them too. And Jesus of Montreal was a very good film for me in that regard, uh, better than Pasolini for me, uh, because it was so clearly critical of everything that most people associate with what Archon calls the American empire, and perhaps we should call the U.S. empire. And so, so completely critical of Hollywood, too. And then to add to that, he has more Jesuses in that film than you can shake a stick at. So there's not this one true Jesus that stands over against all of this. There are all of these Jesus here, a kaleidoscope of Jesus, uh, because of one, for one reason or another. Most big budget film, maybe most film, is, is mythic in the sense that I'm thinking about. And it, although you can take any film and read it differently, read it against the grain and, and find something that you know, sort of scrubs off into something different. Films that challenge that, that tweak that, that, that are, I think, less common for financial reasons and as well as religious reasons. Yeah, I think one of the interesting uh, things that you bring out in this conversation is the way that the greatest story ever told is filmed in the American West. And so all of the landscape that you see is uh, America and that yeah. kind of set, setting us up as, as, as being like gods, like you're saying, right. uh, at these American gods watching yeah. this myth about our, uh, yeah. our, our deification is fascinating. Yeah, I'm ashamed to say I love that film <laughs> because of the landscape and because I keep expecting Jesus to be a cowboy. Mm. And I, my father my father and I watched Westerns growing up, and I know mm. there are all kinds of things wrong with that, which you know, can talk about that, too. Mm-hmm. But I can't get away from my past completely. Growing up in Nevada, I love seeing mountains everywhere. And that's one of the things that I do appreciate about that film, even though I, I must admit it's my least favorite Jesus film. Yeah, I, I understand. It's, it's, it's terrible to watch unless you, unless you want to see the scenery. It is interesting that there is this tension between, you know, how do you represent a person in whom human and divine is, is, is thought to have dwelt in the sense that, you know, what primacy do you give to historical accuracy versus this encounter with universal Christ kind of impulse? And it is interesting to me, I was reading the other day a, an article by an art historian who specialises in, in um, European Renaissance kind of, you know, 1300s to 1600s kind of era. And he was tracing through how, how did we end up with, with a, a Jesus portrait, which is white European male. And he was just tracing through that narrative. And he, it was interesting to me that, you know, fairly early on when they started to blend iconography with self-portraiture, people very, from, you know, from a long time ago have been recasting this Palestinian Jew into their own image. And part of that was a not not so savory impulse behind that, but this this art historian was observing that part of that is the impulse is to position Jesus in a context that would connect with their not their readership but their their audience essentially. So that one, um, I think he's a Sicilian artist painter. He painted Jesus in the same way that he painted all his other portraits, and that was considered something that was oh, like let's think about what that 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 caused an interruption and a pause to the observer because they considered, you know, I only imagine, well, what would, I, what would I do if I encountered Jesus now? And that seems to be a similar impulse in some of the Jesus films in the sense that it's trying to, it, when they go a little bit, whatever angle they take, they're trying to open up the audience to consider if you encountered Jesus, what would you do? That kind of impulse. Is that something that you think is, is a thread throughout these Jesus films? when they take those kind of left field angles? Well, I I think that's a thread definitely in Jesus relocations so that the hidden Jesus, the Jesus that appears unawares and suddenly to us is is part of film 
primarily in some non-historical setting. That, that is not the first century uh, Palestinian setting, but in Germany or uh, a fictional South Africa, you, when you put Jesus there, then certainly you have, a, you have more of this concern with uh, Caravaggio's you know, bringing of you know, models off the street in to be the holy people in his paintings. You have something going on like that, except what Caravaggio is doing is probably the opposite of what a filmmaker is doing. They're probably trying to hallow the, the, the common and the ordinary when, when, they, when they do this, to, or, or to make us have a sense that somebody is watching us. I think another thing that ought to be considered here is uh, Pelican's wonderful book on Jesus through the centuries. When, when he, he talks about what you're talking about, how different cultures represent Jesus according to their own best ideals. But he, he also points out that they are struggling to answer questions as they do this and that they are trying to answer those, those fundamental questions. He talks about the true, the good, the beautiful. So most people who, who go to the trouble to do a Jesus are trying to present him as the true, the, the good, or the beautiful in some way. And most humans probably think of the beautiful in terms of something that's recognizable to them rather than something exotic. I mean, I don't know if that's a good thing, a bad thing, or you know what, but I think that most of us probably th think in those terms uh, and, and have to learn to appreciate otherness and the exotic. So I think that's part of what's going on too. Caravaggio, I, as I understand Caravaggio, Caravaggio was running a different game, going a different way. Pasolini's fascinating here too. All right, Stevens is interesting only for the landscape. And sometimes I think Pasolini is interesting only for the close-ups because he is always giving you a close-up, usually unless, unless it's a beautiful young man, the close-up's going to be of a peasant. And so it's not the Renaissance art, you know, it's snaggle tooth, wrinkled faces, age, disease. And quite often, these are the faces that I think Pasolini was trying to offer up as beautiful or holy in some way over against the, uh, the villains of the piece. Uh, it's, it's an interesting, next time you look at Pasolini, don't watch the story, watch the faces. And so different from the Christian iconography that demonizes so many people in the story, like Gibson uh, demonizing the Jews in, in his story, uh, visually. You know, I mean, Adele talks about this in many, many of her works and she's convinced me. Yeah, wow, so interesting. And it's interesting what you're talking about earlier about um, the way it's often these films by introducing resonance with our, our everyday lives. They're trying to kind of make sacred the ordinary everyday. And I know that that's, that's a theme in, um, in Eastern iconography um, of the, the red corner. So in, in a lot of um, every <clears throat> everyday house, like, you know, in homes, there's an icon in a corner that's called the red corner. Mm. And it's kind of this, you know, trying to introduce um, an awareness that, that you're being watched, essentially, what you're saying before, which is interesting. Something I was wondering if you have any thoughts on was in the New Testament when we're told that that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Does that give us any kind of meaningful handholds about how we're to think about divine representation in, in, in the way that we're talking about in this conversation? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I know that the that Roman Catholic artists and filmmakers have hung their hat on that <laughs> as best they could. I grew up in a Baptist tradition and I probably have less to say, but uh, uh, Lloyd Ball talks about this, Scorsese struggling with that, you know? Uh, so, and, and the Roman Catholic influence on film, Jesus film is, is huge. Don't know if we thought of seriously enough about what debt the Protestants who like Jesus films owe to the Roman Catholic tradition you know, for, for this portrayal. When you say that they hang their hat on it, can you explain to me why that, because I've, I've heard that rationale used, but I didn't quite track what, what the rationale is. Like well, this, this, is, this is not my field. It's probably more your field than mine. But as I, rem as I remember my college days, <laughs> when, when there was the iconoclastic controversy, then one of the ways that people who wanted to use images defended the use of images was by talking about the incarnation and my roman catholic friends when they start talking about this they, they go to the incarnation pretty quickly to defend visual representations of jesus or really any other saintly figure it's sort of 
there's this blanket effect kind of, you know, for the, oh, so I, I, I think they would be better to deal with that question than Jesus films are often maligned on both sides. You have critics of the films don't tend to love them as films and religious moviegoers are often super critical of any perceived deviation from the text of the gospels. So I guess my question to you is, is the genre a hopeless failure? Well, uh, no. Well, yes. <laughs> well, I can't make up my mind. Uh, <laughs> Lloyd Bell says it's a hopeless failure because nobody gets the incarnation right. Barnes Tatum said it was a hopeless failure because nobody got the historical Jesus right. But there are a hundred plus years of Jesus films. So somebody thinks it works or there wouldn't still be Jesus films. And different films work for different people. So I, I don't know if I like Jesus films. Uh, I tried to quit working with Jesus films several times. And I kept getting dragged back into it for one reason or another. Uh, I had successfully resisted Jesus films for six weeks until today. So you dragged me back into it again. So, you know, but uh, <laughs> when people like horror films, they feel the need to apologize. And I feel the need to apologize for spending so much time with Jesus films because they will not be remembered as the great cinematic productions of the 20th or 21st century. There will be some honorable mentions, but they won't. There, there are better films as films than Jesus films. So if you come to this from an orthodox theological perspective, and I use that for any tradition that has a clear view and not the orthodox tradition perspective, or if you come to this from, from a true historian's sensibility, or you come to this from an aesthete sensibility, you're not going to be happy. And you're going to talk about, well, this one does, at least does this right. This one does that right. That, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, you have to be willing to tolerate some iffy stuff cinematically, theologically, and historically speaking to watch Jesus films. And if it makes you feel any better, you have to be willing to tolerate some iffy stuff to watch any other kind of film too, generally speaking. The, the great films are, are rare films, I think, in, in any tradition, in, in, in any particular genre you want a bit and i love film but i still i sometimes i feel the need to apologize for spending too much time on this i should be doing something serious and in fact my students frequently ask me why i went into religion why i didn't do something that would be important and helpful uh, to humanity in the 21st century and i have no answer for them other than what i've already said so well, we're sorry for dragging you back uh, into this uh, after your, your six-week sabbatical. Um, I enjoyed my sabbatical. Okay, good. Well, um, perhaps as a final question, um, just thinking about how, you know, you had said earlier that it's hard to really kind of define a Jesus film. I know in your book, you talk about how you kind of want to work with a non-essentialist definition, largely because I think you, you probably don't want to box out certain films. You have a more inclusive approach, it seems. Um, and that's that's a stance that I generally take as well. But one of the things that you say about Jesus films is that, you know, they're kind of like follower films. So they they tend to have uh, similar tropes and 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 sort of uh, visual sort of uh, maneuvers that they recycle kind of over and over. And when you're talking about this, you point out how Life of Brian in particular draws attention to that and and in in the way that it parodies the genre. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about this for us about what the genre is based upon how a parody calls attention to it. I suppose to get there I have to I have to say that Jesus films began as spectacle or story. If they are spectacles they're something out of worship. Uh, there's something in which Jesus is not developed. He is presented in an iconic, talismanic, you know who this is, we don't have to worry about it kind of thing, bow down and worship. And, as, and that was the way cinema went until they started to learn to try to tell story with the camera. And, but they learned to tell story with the camera in stories around Jesus, Jesus adjacent things, not, not Jesus himself. In fact, I think we're still trying to learn to tell a good Jesus story that fits the cinematic tradition. Maybe that's unfair. Maybe that's too harsh. But anyway, that, that seems to be how it works. Uh, and so at, at certain points, these things just take over film because you have, you, after DeMille, you don't have what I would call a Jesus film for a long time in the U.S. You have some in Mexico, you have some in other places, but you don't want to have in the U.S. You have, I would call them follower films. You have stories around Jesus, Jesus adjacent stories. 
And then when you go back to making Jesus films, you got to have something besides Jesus in the story to interest people. So when you come back with uh, King of Kings, it's Judas and Barabbas that are the real interest. Or you try to tell the greatest story. The problem with the greatest story is you can't figure out who the interest is supposed to be. I think it was supposed to be Lazarus, but it didn't hold up. Uh, and, and you keep going with somebody else being the important thing. And so then you wind up with, let's just do a Judas film. Or more recently, let's do a Mary Magdalene film, which is a better film than it gets credit for being. It, it, you know, it, it, it deserved, I wish it had been seen more widely by more people. So these, there's this kind of thing. And so what Life Brian does is to leave everybody in the story except for Jesus. And so you see that it's a follower film and everybody's trying to make a Messiah except for Brian, right? Who is the closest to, I know Jesus is in the film briefly doing the Sermon on the Mount from afar. But for me, Jesus is the Brian figure and he doesn't, he's not the Messiah. He doesn't want to be the Messiah. Even his mother knows he's not the Messiah. Okay. And, but everybody around him is treating him either as a Messiah claimant, let's crucify him or Messiah, let's believe him, pop him up. And I, that's the Jesus film tradition. You know, Jesus over here, we're not quite sure. He's either awe-inspiring or a blank. We don't get it. And then everything that's happening, everything that we're watching happens around him. So in King of Kings, uh, Nicholas Ray wanted to, wanted to prioritize, wanted to make a spectacle of Jesus' pacifist message. And he does that pretty well with the sermon. But when he gets to Jerusalem, he has the narrator say, and the narrator wasn't, Ray's idea, but in the film that we have, you know, you, the narrator says Jesus went into the temple to talk of his message of peace, and the camera stays outside with Barabbas's revolt, because Barabbas's revolt is what we all want to see. It's the story that interests us, you know, and, and that, so that that's the Jesus film tradition too. And it's uh, it's quite the narrator uh, in that film. Yes, it is, yeah. Dr. Walsh, this was absolutely fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. There's so much to talk about with Jesus Films, and we just appreciate your encyclopedic knowledge of Jesus Films and all, all of what you shared with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It was nice to meet all of you, too. 